0: On the podcast, I will be joined each week by an exciting guest to help provide evidence-based information and advice about both the perimenopause and the menopause. So today I'm very excited to have with me in the studio, Dr. Rupi. Some of you might know him best for The Doctor's Kitchen. So welcome today, Rupi. I'm very excited to have you here today.
1: Thank you, Louise. I'm excited to be here. It's great to connect.
0: So you probably don't know it, but I've been stalking you for a while, actually. And um, (laughs) (laughs) if I didn't do anything in the medical space, I would do something in nutrition because most people who know me know I'm completely obsessed with what I eat in a healthy way. But I'm very careful about eating because actually when I eat well, I feel better and I get more out of my day. So when I bought your book, was it 2015 when it came out?
1: Uh, 2017, actually. Yeah, 2017.
0: It was interesting because then I actually, when I was reading your beginning words, you're talking about evidence-based medicine and you're Mm. talking about how improving your health using food and preventative medicine. And when I read it, I actually read it twice. Uh, It's really sad, isn't it? I don't normally read words. I just go to recipes, (laughs) normally in books. And I thought, actually, this guy is doing what I'm trying to do with the menopause, but he probably doesn't know anything about the menopause. No disrespect to you, Rupi. <laughs> and I thought, how interesting. There's lots of analogies here. So at a far, I've been sort of stalking and watching and, and really actually amazed with your success, actually, and your perseverance and your drive, actually, to make a difference and make cooking and nutrition accessible to everybody. So yeah, so this is a bit of a sort of um, stalkerish moment actually. (laughs) um, So it's a great honour to be here but I'd really like to just learn a bit more about how you got into food because if you're like me, obviously you are like me, we're both doctors, if your training is like my training, you just get nothing about diet, nutrition, how food works, about our gut microbes, I didn't know any of that. So Is that the same for you? Or did you have a different experience? That was
1: totally the same for me. Um, First of all, that's very kind of you to read the book (laughs) twice and say those nice things. That's really, really nice. Yeah. So, I mean, like I grew up in a real foodie household. My mum was like a typical sort of Indian matriarchal figure, but she also had like a whole bunch of other strings to her as well. So, she investment banker. She studied law. She started her own graphic design company. She started her own magazine. This is way wow. before magazines went to digital, and she's all thinking about digital. So she's been like not only like an incredible maternal figure, who's someone who taught me how to cook before I went to med school, but also someone who showed me that it is possible to juggle all these things as well and still look after your diet. And and the other thing about this, my upbringing is that it was really influenced by traditional Indian medicine. So all those sort of like old wives tales about turmeric and milk and stuff and mm. having the right collection of spices and looking at the root cause and focusing on your gut. That was sort of always in my upbringing, but I never paid attention to any of it because, you know, it was coming from my parents and you always kind of like disregard what your parents yeah. say and that none of them are medical. And, you know, so when I went to med school, I promptly forgot all that kind of stuff. And as you know, from your experience in, in medical school as well, it's, you know, we're not taught about holistic living. We're not talking about nutrition. We're not talking about no. any of that kind of stuff. And so my sort of introduction into nutrition as a science really came a lot later. And that actually happened from personal experience. So I got yeah. ill straight after mm. medical school. I was three months into my clinical job. I started having palpitation episodes that mm-hmm. I kind of brushed off. And then basically would occur two to three times a week, anywhere up to 12 to 36 hours at a time. The first time I got diagnosed, I was actually working, uh, as was the DGH, uh, Basildon and Essex. And I was admitted whilst I was on call at 6pm on a Sunday. I remember my consultant came around. I was so embarrassed. I was in like this gown and I had the it cardiac awful. monitor. You feel my, so
0: vulnerable oh, as a patient.
1: So vulnerable, honestly, mm. so vulnerable. I was at like, 24, you know, and I was, I was mm. getting used to like, that medical lifestyle and, you know, walking into the wards with my stethoscope and then suddenly I'm, a patient and you know, it's, it's embarrassing and you have no idea what's going on. And that was when I started paying a bit more attention to what my, my mum was telling me Mm. all those years ago and then started retelling me as well about how I need to really look at my diet and lifestyle and optimize it alongside taking the medications that I was prescribed at the time as well.
0: Mm. it's so interesting isn't it because I think especially when you're young you think you can get away with anything and often you can of course but it it sometimes is an illness or a condition like I know you had atrial fibrillation didn't you that can Mm. really stop you in your tracks actually and I think it's good for medics to be ill that sounds really awful but I think you learn a lot and I had pancreatitis a few years ago and came out of the blue. I had this awful pain when I was ironing. And my husband said, oh, you've got pancreatitis. And I looked at him and I said, how? I don't drink alcohol. You know, we're always taught at medical school, people with gallstones are sort of slightly overweight, fair haired, 40. And I, well, I was 40 when that happened, but... It was just the worst pain I've ever experienced in my life. I can't even begin to tell you how awful it was. And Mm. my amylase was very high. And my husband actually came to hospital and said to me, Oh, Louise, if you die, I don't quite know how I'm going to look after the children. I said, I don't need this. (laughs) I just need looking after. And that first night, my blood pressure was going down. My pulse was going up. My oxygen saturation was going down. We all know how serious pancreatitis is. Yeah. It was really, really scary. And I learned a lot about how to talk to patients because there was that compassion that sadly wasn't there for some of the medical staff, partly because they were busy. But also it makes you realize how important life is and how health we cannot take for granted. You know, Mm. And, and my lifestyle then was good. I already said I wasn't drinking. I wasn't smoking. I ate well you know, I've always eaten well. But afterwards, I decided to eat really well, because I was so mm. scared. And there was no obvious trigger for the pancreatitis. I've since had my gallbladder taken out, which seems to have helped. But there was a time where I was still poorly. And I thought, right, I've got to be in control of this, because I, I've got to look after my children more than anything else includes quite like to have my job as well. So I really, really played with diet, and found that certain foods just made me feel better didn't help my pancreatitis symptoms but I just felt mentally more alert I just mm. felt you know I used to have a bit of a sweet tooth and I'd eat a it's awful isn't it eat a donut or something and I'd feel great for a few minutes and then I'd feel really tired and I'd be mm. that afternoon I'd be looking at my couch my examination couch like oh, I just want a bit of a nap there and then I suddenly <laughs> thought not having these processed foods not having sugars I didn't have that dip so you're nodding. So I presume that you agree. with yeah. that.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally.
0: <laughs> but it's interesting. But it's hard to do, isn't it? I think it's really easy. And I don't want people to listen to this podcast. They are oh, look at them, they eat really healthily. How easy is that? They don't understand. But it is really difficult to change eating habits, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to go back to what you said about why it's important for medics to maybe not personally experience ill health but have that real close experience i completely agree with that because at med school we're all taught communication skills we're taught how to empathize and i think most people who go into medicine are empathetic people however when you have that personal experience when you're literally wearing that gown Where you're literally in the hospital for days at a time, where you're looking at the risks of having an intervention like an ablation or Mm -hmm. removing your gallbladder, you're reading that consent form and it's you on the other Mm -hmm. side of that form. It's completely different, a completely different experience. And so that's why I think a lot more medics are getting involved and learning about lifestyle because if it's not them it's their loved ones who are having these problems whether it be type 2 diabetes cardiovascular disease strokes all these things that we know are preventable through long-term changes to one's lifestyle So I think that's really important. The principles of healthy eating that you'll know that I talk about in all of my books, and they haven't changed despite what you might have seen through the headlines in the nutrition world, you know, suddenly cheese is back and butter and all the Mm -hmm. rest of it. Healthy amount of vegetables, plant forward, lots of different types of fiber, quality fats making sure you're hydrated and eating whole foods as much as possible. So that spectrum of processed versus unprocessed, we want to be more towards the unprocessed. That's sort of very simplistic for me to just try and advise as many people, putting that into action consistently every single day. That's where the magic happens. It's not through the inclusion of a particular superfood or a particular spice. It's consistently eating that way. That's why it's so hard. Because our environment is conspiring against us at every level. So you were just talking about a donut, for example. When I was working as a junior doctor, I didn't drink coffee. I wasn't a smoker. Definitely didn't take drugs or anything like that. Had a drink at the weekends, but wasn't like binging or drinking throughout the week or anything like that. But my environment was in the hospital canteen. Mm -hmm. And I was having cereals in the morning, whatever they would slop up for lunch or lunch or dinner on the go which would be a meal deal white bread sandwiches crisps coke you know things that we normalize and we still normalize today i was recently on a train and uh, i didn't bring my tupperware with me which, and it was, it's kind of like geeky to talk about but i, I bring a tupperware with my food mm. at all times now because you have to because my experience in the train was biscuits chocolates crisps there was nothing else the only thing i could really have was just water so no wonder it's hard when you're hungry and you're tired and you're working to eat well everywhere you go because our environment is really really against us and then there's the education the access if you live in a deprived area what options do you have none because the cheapest food is marketed to the most vulnerable people and as gps both of us you know we've had that experience of Telling people about eating well and then having the conversation, well, it's expensive, isn't it? And I don't have the time, and I've got three kids, and I work two jobs. And, you know, it's super, super hard. So that's why my sort of approach is personalizing it to the person and their convenience in the environment, personalizing it to their cultural background. I'm not recommending kale salads to my Sri Lankan patients. And also starting really, really slow, such that they can compound those behaviors over time and that might be as simple as just adding one portion of fruit and vegetable or nut or seed at one meal time in the day and then just doing it from there like you know that James Clear sort of methodology of just making the habit change as small as possible and just making sure you don't post any zero days
0: and I think that's really important and I like the idea of adding something rather than taking something away
1: Mm. because
0: I think that is really important and I'm sort of fortunate not fortunate I get migraines quite badly and certain foods trigger migraines so if I was Mm. on that train with you and had any of those foods I would be guaranteed to have a migraine later so actually I can't have those because I can't afford the time off to have a migraine and so my diet now is controlled by my migraines actually but actually it's really good because I can't then have a piece of chocolate or I can't just have a little sandwich because I forgot to bring my lunch into work and so that way, I have to be more organized. I'm like, yo, I have a Tupperware or I have an empty yogurt pot if I'm traveling because I can just put it in the recycling when I've finished it. So I carry food with me and it's a bit of a joke. And I'm always worried about who else is eating, what they're doing. Because if I don't have lunch, I will be guaranteed to have a migraine. I can't, my husband can operate all day and it doesn't matter. But, but actually, I think I'm, when I say I'm lucky, it means I have to eat well. But for a lot of people who don't have migraines or have another condition, They can get away with it, can't they? And then Mm. you put on a bit of weight, you feel a bit sluggish, and then you're less likely to make those changes. I had a patient once who was, she was so lovely. She was in her late 70s, and she was larger than life. And her husband had sadly died from cancer a few years before. And she was just gradually put on weight, but she would always be very overweight. And when I had pancreatitis and was off, I, I came back to work and she said, Louise, she said, Dr. Newson, She said, this is all those seeds that you eat. I knew there would be, <laughs> and she said, I knew there's no point eating healthily. So I said, oh, you're probably right, but actually I feel better. And then over the next year, she lost five stone in weight. And it was transformational. And I said to her, about, how have you done this? She said, I suddenly thought, I'm joking at you, but you're always looking slim. So I decided to cut out my cake to change what I was doing, and the weight's just fallen off me. I said, my goodness Amazing. me, this is somebody who's elderly, has made that change and admitted to me as well as to others that her diet could improve. But I've never known anyone, you know, lose that weight so easily and quickly once she got their mindset. And to be, it's harder, isn't it, when you're older to make those changes? Definitely. So there's hope for everyone.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, your experience – and my experience, is almost like forced us. Has put the rails on such that we have to keep to a lifestyle in order to protect our health. A lot of people don't have those carrot and stick mm-hmm. habit change methods. We don't have that instant fever that, you know what, you need to keep on this because otherwise you're going to experience poor health again, such that you've already had that experience. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are habituated to eating a certain way until it gets to that age where they're 40, 50, 60, and they have raise cholesterol or they have a heart attack or they have anything you know even more sinister than that so that's why what i'm asking people to do is inherently very difficult i'm saying invest now for your health later in the same way you know people don't invest in pensions as much as they should do because they can't really see the benefit until later so we tend to put things off it's just within our human nature to do so so yeah now hearing stories about how people can change their habits at such a late age. It gives me a lot of hope for everyone.
0: But then talking about prevention, I'm really worried about children, actually, Mm. because certainly at medical school, there was hardly any childhood obesity in the 90s when I was a student. Whereas now it's very, very different, not just in the UK, but worldwide as well. And I was listening to a great podcast by the fantastic twins who are medics, Chris and Zand. I'm sure you know them from Operation Mouch yes. because my 10-year-old absolutely adores them. <laughs> but they were talking, a great podcast about ultra-processed foods. And they were looking, mm. I'm sure you know, Chris and Zand now weigh different amounts. Their eating's very different. And, and yeah. this ultra-processed food was very interesting because my daughter was listening to it. And she eats well, but like a lot of children, she has a sweet tooth and she'll love a packet of crisps. We don't have crisps at home, but if we're out, she'll... And she's really listened and said, gosh, mommy, I had no idea. And she's listening to it from the most amazing people that she just adores. So it's very Mm. different from me. And I thought, actually, this is incredible. And Chris has been very, very open and Sand was as well. And I think when you have a bit of a personal story, but then you've also, you're a medic. So people are listening to you and you're educating children. I mean, goodness me, they did such a good job. But I do Mm. think it's, as a mother, I have a real responsibility for what my children eat. And that's actually worse than the responsibility of feeding myself, because this investment for their future health is, is so key, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think childhood obesity is a really complicated topic, because on the one hand, we know that we need to be investing in their health today to prevent that huge tidal wave of disease that we're already experiencing today. You know, the analogy is almost like environmental uh, change and climate change. We also need to be aware of the potential detrimental impact of making them too anxious about healthy eating from a young age mm, as well, because we know that has a whole suite of issues. It's the minority, but it's certainly growing. And I'm seeing that in my short time on social media, I've really seen the rise of young people, not necessarily like 10, 11 year olds, but certainly like their late teens and 20s. Being really, really anxious about what they're eating, which is why actually every now and then I try and tell people to unfollow me because I'm the kind of person that will always talk about healthy eating. And that might be detrimental to certain people who actually have an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. So I think being responsible influences, particularly from the medical profession, we need to be cognizant of that. But it's a real issue because not only is the environment, again, conspiring against kids. But it's also something that, again, we're not taught about as medics to open up that conversation. You know, how do you approach a mother and talking to them about their child for which they have responsibility without offending the mother and actually leaving them with some advice that's actually going to make a change over the long term that they can sustain as well? given all the pressures that we have as individuals today. And I'm not a parent yet either. I'm, I've got a partner and I'm lucky to, to I'm engaged at the moment, we're getting married next year. So I've still got that sort of element to understand, to truly empathize with parents. But it's certainly something that I'm cognizant of with my colleagues who have got kids as well, because they tell me about their struggles. And yeah, we definitely need to approach that. And there, there are multiple ways in which we can do, but we have to understand the environment in which we operate in. And it's very complicated when it comes to childhood obesity.
0: Of course it is. Absolutely. And talking about things that weren't taught at medical school, how much do you know about the menopause, Rupi? <laughs>
1: <EP? laughs> <laughs> well, we were chatting about that on my pod earlier, weren't we, about menopause and how much attention that was given. I mean, I remember vividly the first time a woman came into clinic, I think I was an F2 and I was doing like a GP placement. And uh, she told me about a moon cup. I literally looked at her like, I have, I have no idea what you're talking about. I really, I was very open about it. No idea what a menstrual cup is. I've never heard about this before. And she was educating me on it. It's kind of embarrassing, to be honest, because we really should be taught a lot more stuff about practical obstetric gynecology, not just the stuff that you see in hospitals, which was my experience. It's just like the day-to-day. So, yeah, no, I, uh, I I had to teach myself a lot, but even post-general um, practice training.
0: Absolutely. So, and I think when we think about, menopause as you know now thank you for reading my book about it being a hormone deficiency how much did you think about menopause and weight changes around this time Mm. did you know or did it was it ever on your radar much about the sort of metabolic effects of low estrogen and how women can put on weight just because of their menopause rather than any lifestyle changes
1: So that was new to me. So when you were talking about your book on my podcast, I talked to you about how the the lack of estrogen causing an increase in particular types of tissue, adipose tissue, creating a form of estrogen, and the reason why that can explain unexplained weight gain in middle-aged women, that process, that mechanism was new to me. So I'm definitely going to be looking at that in a bit more detail. The more obvious effects, the more metabolic issues that we see around that time period, it's sort of like, it's very obvious now looking back at it, that there is Mm -hmm. clearly going to be a flywheel effect of all these issues that are related to estrogen deficiency. So looking after someone's osteoporosis, looking after someone's deficiencies in vitamins and minerals as a result of that period is, you know, that's something that I'm taking a lot more interest in. Good. Good.
0: Very pleased to hear that. (laughs) And it's interesting because you've done a master's, haven't you, in nutrition. Did you have any modules on female hormones at all?
1: Oh, no, no. That's a really good point. So we've had modules on obesity, dementia, brain health. What are the other ones? We did one on statistics. I'm currently doing the dissertation for the master's, so it's not completed yet. But my dissertation, there weren't any titles on that. So I think there were some on um, children's nutrition, pregnancy nutrition, postpartum nutrition. But specifically looking at the menopause, no, there wasn't. And certainly something I'm going to be writing to uh, University of about actually, because it's super, super important, obviously. Like we said on the pod, it affects 100% of 50% of the population at a certain point. So, you know, it needs to be looked at. We've looked at isolated issues that affect people going through the menopause. So cardiovascular disease, we've looked at osteoporosis, we've looked at sarcopenia Mm. when it comes to nutrition. So those things are all relevant. But as an individual module, looking at all those different things that we can optimise nutrition around, no, that wasn't included.
0: And it's very important. And then even, you know, when we were just talking about children, Mm. if you're menopausal and you're caring for a child – It's really hard to look after yourself, let alone your children. And if you're feeling under par, it's so easy to give your children rubbish to eat, because obviously that's what they want to eat. They want to eat rubbish. Mm. These foods are highly addictive, as you know, and there's all sorts of reward things that get lit up in the brain when people eat these foods. If you've come in from work and a job that you're barely putting together, you get home and you're exhausted the last thing you're going to do is think about food or think about what's in the freezer or have I cooked before? And so, you know, children are indirectly affected by the menopause so often. They're not cared Mm. for in the same way. I really worry about even abuse at home because women who are struggling, it's really difficult for them. But the children, I really worry. And I do think it's another reason that their diets maybe not be as good. Obviously, there's no research done in this. This is just hearsay. But I know personally... You no know, mm. I had some symptoms. I, I batch cook. I've got loads of food in the freezer. I've got an argon. I'm very lucky so I can constantly give my children fresh food, even though I'm not at home cooking all the time. But when the freezer was going lower, that's a warning sign that I'm not in control of my life, And my freezer was quite mm. low <laughs> until I found the, or realized what was going on. And you know, when children are young, they've got no idea, have they? So it is really important, this education. And I think they need to watch you cook and realise that it's quite easy to do as well, isn't
1: it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is such an important perspective that I'm embarrassed to admit I haven't actually thought about at all. You know, yes, I understand the impact of financial insecurity, being overworked, multiple responsibilities, multiple kids, you know, all their different worries and, and how diet can fall by the wayside. But if you compound that issue with hormone deficiency, where you're not sleeping properly, you're fatigued for that and for the genuine uh, hormone deficiency itself. You've got brittle bones, you're suffering from skin changes, that has a a huge psychological impact. Your sexual awareness is being impaired as well. All these elements are going to Again, compound the problem of just putting diet to the wayside and just feeding whatever. And to your point about food addiction, we had this again, it was another debate similar to, you know, is the whole obesity issue a disease or a symptom? I agree. I think food, we have to get really used to talking about food and its addictive qualities because we know processing certain elements like sugars. The way it's presented to us, the visual appeal of it, all these different things do light up reward centers Mm. that we have to be cognizant of because we're more attracted to that. And the companies have spent so much money in R&D to achieve what's called, literally called the bliss point. There's a bunch of studies, I think, that came out of, um, I think it was Harvard or somewhere, but they gave uh, certain elements of food. Let's call it like a potato chip. And they would give it to a bunch of testers and then would reformulate based on their feedback again and again and again until they reach that bliss point. So this is like perfectly crafted food that has millions of pounds or dollars in in research and development. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's going to be like super attractive to us. It's just lighting up everything. So, again, that's going to become the thing that we fall on if we're tired, fatigued, and when we don't have all those things that make us Absolutely. think straight.
0: Yeah, I mean, even the crinkle of those crisp packets, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's all lighting up your reward centers. And I had a patient a while ago who came in with really high blood pressure, overweight, middle-aged man, raised cholesterol. And we started talking a bit about diets. And he said, oh, my wife cooks me really well. I so said, what else do you have? What else? Wow, every night, every night, I can't believe it. Every night when I come home from work, I go through the drive through Kentucky Fried Chicken. And he said, but you can't tell my wife. And his wife was a patient of mine as well. And I said, but that's terrible. He said, yeah, I know, but it's so nice. I can't tell you how lovely it is. And he said, I'm really worried because actually now I drive five miles out of my way to Kentucky Fried Chicken, but they're opening one just down the road. And I'm really, really worried. So I said, "Right, you've got a choice here. You can look at your weight, your blood pressure, your cholesterol, you know, your father had a heart attack. You're going to get that weight. Or Mm. you can think, right, this is a real opportunity. I'm really going to stop. And luckily he did the latter. And then just before I left general practice, he came in with his wife. And I knew both of them very well over the last 15 years of being with them. And they were just came to say goodbye. And he said, I've just got something to tell you to his wife in front of me. And I and I knew where, what was happening. And he said, you know that Kentucky Fried chicken, you know that. And she was absolutely mortified because she could not understand why he was putting on so much weight. And they've had this big lie but then when he talked about how addictive it was and there was a bit of a mm. formula going on, it wasn't just the food, it was the process of after work. He'd drive through, he'd have a bit of time, he'd be in his man cave before he went home, he'd sit in his car, he would stuff his face with this disgusting food. Mm. And it was this sort of self-rewarding behaviour that he had developed over the years, actually. Mm. But it mm. all caught up with him. But it's hard. I and mean, I think when you explain to people how hard it is to come off these foods... It's actually quite a relief for them, isn't it? Because they don't realise quite the power and the chemicals that are released in the body, especially the brain, due to these foods.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it gives them a reason. It gives them sort of a greater understanding that it's not just because they lack poor willpower. It's because these foods are designed Mm -hmm. to counter their willpower. It's designed to be as rewarding as possible. And so when you explain that to people, it's like, ah, I understand it's not a fault of mine. In the same way, you know, drawing an analogy with uh, women with the menopause, it's, you know, it's not their fault. It's not because Mm -hmm. they can't cope or it's not because, again, a lack of mental strength. It's because they have a genuine Eating deficiency that needs mm. to be replaced and it needs to be catered for with all the other lifestyle suite of tools that we have as well to support that change. Mm. So when you understand a bit more about the mechanism and a bit more about how they can take control of that, then I think it's liberating for a lot of people. You know, I had a patient who uh, was um, a South Indian gentleman with uh, UC, and he uh, had a number of different flares and. I hadn't seen him before, but we went through his diet. And this is the first time I believe that one of the GPs had actually asked him about diet. And littered throughout this whole history were junk food just punctuating his week. And the reason was because uh, I think he was a driver from memory and, you know, he was working a lot on the roads and stuff and would have nowhere else to eat at these service stations. So he'd go for the McDonald's or whatever. And we know looking at peer-reviewed research, a lot of the additives that are added to these processed products are irritant to the gut, and they can mm. exacerbate not only your risk, but also flare-ups of, of inflammatory bowel disease as well. And, and no one had told him that. And so when we were seeing him and he'd come with a flare and stuff, and, and you know, again, we were going through the whole rigmarole of, of steroids and determining whether he needs to go to secondary care or not. Him understanding what was in within his locus of control was super empowering, and so when I saw him later, you know, he'd cut a lot of it out. He was feeling better himself. We didn't know whether that was going to have a long term reduction in his flares because his flares weren't as often as every month or so. It was like every six months, but that alone was super super empowering. So again, I think it comes down to education. It comes down to giving people that locus of control. And just the knowledge itself can be liberating.
0: Yeah, and it's so true, and it's such a place to end on actually is about knowledge and making choices and i think that's really important when it comes clearly to our hormones but more importantly to our our nutrition and what we're eating um so mm-hmm. i'm really grateful for your time Ruby, but before we finish i always end with three take-home tips actually so i'd really be grateful for you to say three things that people can do easily and cheaply to improve their nutrition if that's okay
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'm a big fan of um, just one more. So making the smallest change that you can to your diet, even if it is just adding one more fruit, vegetable, nut, or seed to your diet as long as you don't have allergies. At every mealtime, if possible, that'd be great because I'm a firm believer that we need to be eating more. That was actually the Total chapter of one of my, the chapters in my last book, again, going against the whole, the narrative of like restriction, actually, we need to be thinking about eating more of these things in our diets. The other thing is having a backup meal. So you were just talking about the freezer. I think it's a really, really good addition to people's um, sort of routines to have a backup meal that you can make, or you can pick up and just leave in your freezer at all times. So when you do come back and it's like a late shift and it's 8pm or whatever, you have a back of me, you're not going to go for a takeaway and you've made something from scratch. And the other thing is try to really reflect what you want and find a healthy version of that. So my sort of, I wouldn't call it a guilty pleasure. It's something I super enjoy is pasta. I love pasta. My partner's Italian. She cooks like incredible pasta, but I make that pasta with like three portions of vegetables per person in a batch cook sort of meal. So, I know that is actually contributing to my plant diversity and my plant points every time I eat that. And I really, really, truly enjoy that. So if you can healthify one of your favorite meals, it could be my recipe, it could be another recipe, it doesn't matter. Just add more fruit and vegetable to that and have that as something that you you truly look forward to.
0: Excellent yeah really good simple easy advice and certainly if any of you haven't seen your or read your books maybe they don't have to read them twice but uh, certainly <laughs> have a look uh, we'll put links to them in the notes so, so thank you ever so much because I know you're very busy and it's been great listening to you and uh, listen to your enthusiasm for good food as well so thanks very much today
1: Oh, I appreciate it Louise thank you and good luck with everything as well it's amazing Aww. to see how far you've grown and uh, I can't wait to see what's next for your, your app and everything you're up to
0: Oh, thanks ever so much. Well, hopefully we'll get you back one day so we can talk a bit more. It's great.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: Thanks. For more information about the perimenopause and menopause, please visit my website, balance-menopause.com, or you can download the free Balance app, which is available to download from the App Store or from Google Play.